Word on Health with Paul Pennington. Feel very best of health. It's estimated 90% of adults across the UK are infected with the virus that causes shingles and up to one in four of us will develop it at some point. Despite its prevalence, research shows public understanding of shingles is poor. Marion Nicholson is from the Shingle Support Society. Many people don't understand that shingles is just the name we give to a recurrence of chickenpox. What happens is, as a child, you catch chickenpox. The virus then hides away in the nerve junction boxes. At any point, they could decide to waken up. This tends to be when you're older, but it doesn't have to be. When it recurs, the virus turns up as a row of chickenpox blisters in a line, usually along a rib or down the side of the face. Those are two very common places. Instead of turning up all over the body, as they do for chickenpox. I understand that you can't give shingles to other people, but if a person who has never had chickenpox comes into direct contact with the blisters of someone with shingles, they may get chickenpox. If you have shingles, you're contagious via skin-to-skin contact until the last blister you have has dried and scabbed over. Do we know what triggers an onset of shingles? Things like ill health, a fall, a trauma, sometimes a bereavement, an operation, or just plain old age. Shingles is going to vary hugely from one person to the other. The only thing we can say that covers everyone is it's going to be on one side only, and it's going to be in one small region of the body only. It usually starts with some sort of nerve sensation, and that's going to vary according to the person. It could feel like a pulled muscle, except that when you think back, you haven't been doing anything that might pull a muscle. Or perhaps a super sensitive or burning skin sensation from having been bitten by an insect or touched some sort of a plant to which you might be allergic. And the other one, of course, is the itchy tingle under the skin as though you've got ants running around under your skin. And it's important to get these symptoms checked out early. Treatment, if it's going to be effective, needs to be started within 72 hours of noticing the first symptoms. If you've left it more than three days, the doctor may give you antiviral therapy, but quite frankly, it's not likely to be very effective in shortening the recurrence. Shingles isn't a very important thing on its own. The trouble is, the older you get or the more unwell you are, the worse it's going to be. In older people particularly, the blisters heal up, but those nerve sensations I mentioned, which can be very severe, could go on for a long time. The pain that follows shingles is called post-herpetic neuralgia. It's not treated with ordinary painkillers. Ordinary painkillers will help. The most important treatment for post-herpetic neuralgia is in fact an old-fashioned antidepressant or an old-fashioned anti-epileptic pill. They're not painkillers. They don't work immediately, but they slowly build up a pain block. If you've had shingles once, can you get it again? Some people do get shingles repeatedly, but that's very rare. And there are pills that can be given on an ongoing basis to prevent that from happening. But normally it is a once-off thing. A vaccination for shingles is available on the NHS if you're aged 70 to 79. If you're going through an episode of shingles, what can you do to help yourself? get yourself the drugs from the GP. There are self-help tips you can do. They vary from person to person. There's things like calamine lotion or antihistamine creams. Some people report that putting a cold pack on the skin, perhaps a wrapped pack of frozen peas applied to the area. Other people say that they want a hot water bottle on the area and that really helps them. For the pain that follows shingles, 
Some people find that by pressing their hand on the area that hurts, that alleviates the pain. It gives your nerve, which is sending these pain messages to your brain, a different message to send. My grateful thanks to Marian Nicholson. To find out more and connect through to the Shingle Support Society, log onto our website, www.weddonhealth.com. That's www.weddonhealth.com. Word on Health with Paul Pennington. Feel very best of health. According to the organisers of Glaucoma Awareness Week, there are around 700,000 people across the UK living with one of a group of eye conditions that damage the optic nerve, leading to sight loss. The problem is, around 50% of people don't know they have it. Professor Cecilia Fennerty is a consultant ophthalmic surgeon at Manchester Royal Eye Hospital and trustee of Glaucoma UK. For the vast majority of people, they have no symptoms at all. And then if people seem to be managing well with their vision, they may not go for regular eye checks. A lot of people are fearful that if they go for an eye check at an optician, that they'll get caught up into having to buy glasses, which are clearly very expensive. So they don't go unless they think that they've got a problem. Our concern is that with glaucoma, by the time somebody realizes that there is a problem, then they could have lost considerable amount of vision, which we cannot then get back. Who's most at risk of developing glaucoma? We are all at risk. We have an increased risk as we get old. From the age of 40 onwards, about one in every 100 people may have glaucoma. By the time we reach 75, one in 10 will have glaucoma. There are some individuals that are at particular risk. For instance, those people who have an immediate blood relative with glaucoma. So for some people, it is an inherited condition, but not always. If any of your listeners have glaucoma, it's really important that they tell their relatives and encourage them to go for eye check. And then ethnicity is important. So in particular, people with West African heritage, and that includes the African Caribbean community as well. They are at increased risk of glaucoma and they often get glaucoma at an earlier age too. You mentioned age-related risk. Is there anything we can do in our younger years to reduce that risk? Unfortunately, there isn't any prevention at the moment, and that's why it is so important to detect the condition early. Some people are actually detected at a time before they've actually developed the disease. They may have high pressure, but it may not have done any damage to the nerve at the back of the eye. And so those individuals can receive preventable treatment. But there's nothing an individual can do with their lifestyle or anything that's going to prevent them getting the condition. How do opticians detect glaucoma? The diagnosis of glaucoma depends on having a series of tests, which include having the pressure measured in the eye, examining the nerve by looking through the pupil into the eye, and then doing a field of vision test, which actually measures how far out to the sides people can see. It's their peripheral vision, which tends to be affected. So all of those tests can be performed at your regular sight test at the optician. And if they suspect there are any signs of glaucoma, they're likely to refer you on to a hospital eye unit. And how often should we get our eyes checked? We recommend that you should be going at least every one in two years. For some people at higher risk, we would say on an annual basis. During your awareness push, one of your key missions is to dispel common myths.
myths about glaucoma? One of the big myths is if you have glaucoma, you're going to go blind. With our modern treatments, if we detect glaucoma early enough, we can retain very good vision throughout our life. The other myth is that people will experience blackness, particularly around the periphery, like tunnel vision. And whilst we do lose vision around the edges of our vision, people aren't aware of a black tunnel. That is a myth. In fact, if they are aware of any problem with their vision, it's just patches of blurriness in the periphery. So the signs can be quite subtle. Nobody's going to know that they have glaucoma until the condition is at a quite an advanced level. So get those eye checks so that we can detect it early. My grateful thanks to Professor Fennerty. To find out more and to link through to Glaucoma UK, log on to our website, www.wordandhealth.com. That's www.wordandhealth.com. Word on Health with Paul Pennington. Feel very best of health. Sands Awareness Month is a dedicated time to raise awareness and provide support for families who've experienced the loss of a baby through stillbirth or neonatal death. Charlotte Bevan, head of Saving Babies' Lives at Sands, explains the campaign's aims. To keep the issue in the headlines, essentially, and to drive the fact that we are a community of people who work together and who are united in trying to save lives and give anybody who's affected by the death of a baby the best care and bereavement support possible. And indeed, to support healthcare professionals in training in delivering the best bereavement care possible. Sadly, Charlotte, the death of a baby is not rare. Every day in the UK, around 13 babies die before, during or soon after birth. Since 2016, government and NHS initiatives have been put in place to reduce the number of babies who are stillborn or die within four weeks of birth. After decades of stagnation, the UK stillbirth rate is now falling. What more needs to be done? An awful lot has been done. With every single day of the 13 babies who die, at least two or three of those deaths might have been prevented with different care, with things that we already know today about the kinds of guidance lines that should be followed. We need to learn when things go wrong. And we now have this data about the two or three deaths that might be prevented every day because we now have a robust review system, which I'm extremely happy to say that sounds was very instrumental in pushing forward for looking at each and every single death when it happens at hospital level to say, actually, did this woman get the right care antenatally? Did we look after her appropriately during birth? Did we monitor her baby appropriately during birth? And if the baby was born in poor condition, did that baby get the right neonatal care? So those are the incidences that we're able to highlight now where we could be learning lessons. And importantly, and this is a piece of work that I'm very passionate about, is they haven't lost the family, what their experience of care is. And quite often when you ask a family, you hear a totally different story in that particular case and whether that is something that can be improved on in the future to save a future life. And what are SANS calling for? Much more investment in maternity. Women having babies is the first building block of any society. And although the government has committed around 60 million to improving the number of consultants and midwives on units, research suggests that we need 250 million invested in maternity to get the right number of staffing. For every pound that is spent on maternity, one P goes to research. So there's a huge portfolio of research that needs to be explored. And you can have lots of safety initiatives. And there are an awful lot and we're involved in them, SANS, largely. But if you don't have the staffing and you don't have the support for healthcare professionals, it's incredibly difficult to make those things 
a reality. It's a happy environment, obviously, when it goes well, but it's also a very stressful environment. And if you're juggling multiple women and you can't therefore personalize care for each and every individual woman and listen when she says, I don't think things are right, I don't feel right, and then escalate because you've recognized too that things aren't right, then you're constantly witnessing near misses. There is a whole group of maternity units who are just getting by. I think it's important to note that Care Quality Commission rated 38% of maternity units either inadequate or requiring improvements. For expectant mums listening to this, that's going to be fairly scary to hear. I get that. What we want to do is to raise awareness among families in a positive way, to say, know about yourself, know about what are the risks in pregnancy, how you should eat, how you should exercise, how you should keep well, but also know the nice guidelines around the sort of care you should expect in your antenatal care. It's empowering women and families to know about their pregnancies and know about what they should expect. And I think too often women and families arrive in a maternity unit and just expect the expert will understand and know them. And I think often it's behoven on women and families to put their best foot forward and say, this is me. This is what I need. This is what I would like. My grateful thanks to Charlotte Bevan from Sands. To find out more and connect through to the charity, log on to our website, www.wordandhealth.com. That's www.wordandhealth.com. Word on Health, on air and online 52 weeks of the year with Paul Pennington. Word on Health, your personal prescription for your very best of health.